0: Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Please be seated. Can you identify with Martha's cry of grief as she meets Jesus after Lazarus' death, both from my own experience with bereavement and my work with others who have lost someone I recognize her heartfelt words and her sense that something has gone so badly wrong. In the face of terrible loss, we want to know why. We wonder if it was preventable or just random. Maybe we want somebody to blame, and certainly we want to understand. Martha pours out her heart to her friend and teacher, if you had been here, if you had been paying attention, this would have gone differently. My brother would still be here, where he ought to be. And in fact, the text tells us that Jesus delayed in responding to the plea for Martha and her sister Mary. Lord, he whom you love is ill. Why doesn't he come right away? Did he misread the situation? At the end of the chapter before this, he retreats from Jerusalem because of danger from the authorities. So maybe he hesitates because it's so risky to return. In fact, it is the raising of Lazarus and Jesus' presence in Bethany and then in Jerusalem that will precipitate the crisis that leads inexorably to his death. Jesus' words, this illness is for God's glory. Remind me of his response to the disciples in last week's story of the man who was born blind, in which he says, the blindness is no one's fault, but rather it is that God may be glorified. Both passages sound abstract and rather callous, as if people's misery is just set up so God can be glorified by fixing it. But that is not the point that John is making. In this gospel, when Jesus talks about glory, he is always paradoxically speaking of the death that will lift him up and reveal God's power and love in fullness. The raising of Lazarus is a sign to show who Jesus is and what he has come to do. It both foreshadows what will shortly happen to Jesus himself, and it sets that final act of the drama in motion. Here in late Lent, we can feel the tension gathering. But for now, it is enough to focus on this text itself so theologically dense, so intimately human, and so powerfully relevant for our faith. One of the most important features of this story is Jesus' relationship with this family. He loves them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We see him in their home in Bethany several times in the Gospels. It's a place where he can retreat and rest and enjoy the company of his friends. In John's very next vignette, Mary will anoint Jesus with costly perfume. Everyone hearing this story would have known of the anointing and the close and mutual relationship it implies, as John tells it. Indeed, what John wants is to show the relationship Jesus has with this family in Bethany as an icon of the intimacy that we are invited to have with Jesus. In prayer, in companionship, we too are the friends whom Jesus loves. So let that sink in for just a minute. We are the friends whom Jesus loves, even as we struggle, Even as we cry out from the depths like the psalmist, wondering where God is, we are engaging with one who loves us. Martha, grieving and frustrated, confronting and challenging Jesus, seems to know this. She knows he loves her, and she loves him. This is not a love that shrinks from difficult conversation. So she speaks with confidence, even as she chides him. Where were you? You weren't at his bedside. You missed the funeral. If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Jesus responds with the teaching about the general resurrection that many, though not all, first-century Jews shared. Your brother will rise again. Martha's answer sounds to me like she's responding, yeah, yeah, I know, in the way that we do respond to the not very helpful things that people like to say to placate the bereaved. He'll rise in the resurrection on the last day, she says, but this distant theology doesn't make very much difference to her grief. But, but then Jesus pulls her up short, and the conversation drops to a whole different level. I am the resurrection and the life, he says. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. Do you believe this? And Martha answers, yes. Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God the one coming into the world. It's as if she's groping for language. She grasps and is grasped by this truth in Jesus' presence. She believes not so much because she's figured something out cognitively, but because she's willing to trust herself entirely to this one, her friend and more than her friend, who stands before her, and proclaims that he is life. Not simply ongoing life. Life in its fullness, radiant and unquenchable life. Eternal not so much in time as in quality. Renewing, reconciling, restoring. Abundant life that is not just hoped for in a distant future, but present right now because Jesus is present right now. His words, which are the culmination of a number of Johannine I Am sayings. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. All of these I Am sayings evoke the ancient, divine I Am. I will be whoever I will be. The God of liberation who is revealed to Moses, blazing in a bush that burns but is not consumed. Martha's confession is the pivot point in John's gospel, rather like Peter's in the synoptics. She doesn't understand the full implications of what she affirms, but she makes a sudden leap of faith and commitment. John loves numbers and schematics, and it's worth noting that there are ten chapters before this one in the gospel and ten chapters after it. This verse, which is number 27, is in the very center of the 11th chapter. It's the hinge between Jesus' ministry of signs and teaching and the hour of his death and glory. I found this out preparing for this sermon thanks to scholar Osvaldo Vena. I suspect John wants us to see how central the moment is with its life-giving, life-changing burst of insight. And then Jesus goes on to enact what Martha has affirmed. On the way to Lazarus's tomb, he encounters Mary and those who have come to mourn with her. She too says to him, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Unlike her sister, she doesn't talk theology. She simply weeps. And Jesus weeps with her. The text says Jesus is greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. When we wonder in moments of grief where God is, Jesus' tears remind us that though hidden, God is right here, closer than our breath, in our tears, suffering with us. Jesus' tears remind me that sometimes what I need when I'm grieving is not explanations or advice, but simply someone to share my grief. Sometimes the best we can do for one another when someone is suffering is to hold space, bear witness, and weep with them. Jesus weeps with Mary out of his own grief for Lazarus, in solidarity with her loss, and maybe because of the enormity of what is about to happen. I wonder, too, if coming to Lazarus's tomb, he's suddenly realizing in a visceral way the reality that awaits him in Jerusalem. Are his own mortality and likely death starting to press in? John has no scene of Jesus praying in anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane. Maybe here at Lazarus' grave, he is touching that fear. The raising of Lazarus is a sign that points to the power of life even in the midst of death. We, of course, do not always see such raisings, neither as quickly or as fully as we yearn to. But the tears of Jesus standing with us in our losses show us God present even when all we can do is grieve and when we do not see any possibility of new life. God weeps with us in our brokenness and weeps for the brokenness of the world. The story emphasizes how hopeless it is. In Jewish understanding, the spirit hovers near the body for three days after death, and then it departs. And this is the fourth day. Mary protests Jesus' instruction to take away the stone. There will be a stench, she says, or, in the words of the King James translation, He stinketh! (laughs) But Jesus insists. And then he cries with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! This moment, this is sheer grace, the miracle of new creation out of nothing. The voice of love calls Lazarus' name and it reaches all the way through death and the dead man responds from the depths of the grave, The 17th century priest and poet John Donne describes such a moment this way, God can bring thy summer out of winter, though thou have no spring. Summer out of winter, though thou have no spring. Outlandish as this story of Lazarus' return to life is, maybe you can relate to the life-giving power of this moment, the power, well, of coming out. I don't mean, of course, only coming out of the closet, although there there are so many ways to illustrate and talk about this transformative act of God. But in this week, when we will celebrate the Transgender Day of Visibility, in a time when those of us who are LGBTQ are under attack in so many parts of our country, when Georgia's governor just this week signed into law a bill that will deny trans youth life-saving, gender-affirming medical care and keep their parents and doctors from caring for them appropriately, and several other states are poised to follow suit. In these days, when drag queens are threatened for lovingly reading stories to children, I feel compelled to lift up for a moment the resurrection power of daring to be who you really are in the fullness of gender and sexuality and every other way that God has created. This passage calls all of us, especially those of us who are not personally threatened, to stand in solidarity, to advocate, and to work that the promise of life in its fullness may be available for all our beloved siblings. And we are all Lazarus. We are called out of deaths, large and small, out of the tombs of false identity and shame, of telling or believing lies, of hopelessness and bitterness and judgment. Perhaps most of all, we are called to come out from the deaths that keep us afraid, which constrict and keep us from living. We are invited by the voice of one who knows us completely and loves us utterly, invited to rise up, to come authentically alive, to enter vulnerable and new into the wide world of God's creation and God's beloved community. And so, the dead man comes out. Lazarus came out, still wrapped in his grave clothes. The next words, friends, always touch me. Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Can you imagine them, his friends and family, hesitant at first and then with their excited, fumbling fingers trying to undo all the careful dressings of death? Can you imagine them, eager and fearful, to see what lies beneath all those wrappings and hoping, hoping that indeed it is life? For me, rising from my dead places, is not so quick or dramatic as Lazarus's exit from the tomb, but always it includes the loving hands of friends and spiritual companions who brave the awkward messiness of unbinding, the wonder and confusion of seeing and hearing me into new life, equipping, supporting, and challenging me to live unencumbered by the trappings of death. These friends help me move past life that has ended, past old ways that are too constricted and small, that no longer nourish or enliven me. They help me risk living into unfamiliar possibilities. They stand in solidarity with me and give me courage. We need each other to move into new life. As we come to the end of Lent, in a world that simply reeks of death. This story offers strong medicine. In the face of all death's power, it invites us deeper into the presence of the God who loves us, who weeps with us in our grief and calls us into new and more abundant life, who bids us rise and unbind one another. At the heart of this story, Jesus asks us, you and me, this question. I am resurrection and life, he says. Do you believe this?